Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today, we're joined by Dan Nomura, who is a distinguished professor at UC Berkeley and an investigator at the Innovative Genomics Institute, specializing in chemical biology and molecular therapeutics. He serves as the director of the Novartis Berkeley Translational Chemical Biology Institute and founded Frontier Medicines and Vicinitas Therapeutics. He is also A16Z BioHealth's newest advisory partner. Dan joined BioHealth's Jorge Conde and Becky Furtahert to share how he got started working in chemical biology and chemoproteomics. Because there's tons of really cool therapeutic targets in that 90% that we currently can't access. But chemoproteomics, using chemical probes and using proteomics, allows us to identify potential legendable sites across really now the vast majority of the human proteome. They also discussed Dan's experience founding companies and leading lab and pharma collaborations. That's been an incredibly fruitful endeavor to be able to have that maximum flexibility, go after really blue sky ideas with pharma partners. And it's been also an incredible training experience for the graduate students and postdocs to be able to work directly with industry scientists and leverage our collective brain power. So let's join Dan, Jorge, and Becky here on BioEats World from A16Z. Welcome to this special episode of BioEats World. I'm joined today by A16Z uh, general partner, Jorge Conde, and we couldn't be more thrilled to share some very exciting news with our listeners. Today, we're announcing that Dan Nomura, who's here with us today in our Menlo Park studio, is joining the A16Z bio and health team as an advisory partner to our team and portfolio companies. Welcome, Dan. Thanks. Great to be here. So let's start at the beginning. How did you initially become interested in science? Yeah, so I, through growing up, was always interested uh, in science. And originally, I think I was interested in, like, anthropology and archaeology. And I remember my parents saying, you're not going to make money doing that. So I I don't know, I (laughs) kind of switched uh, areas, and I started getting really interested into astrophysics and, you know, black holes and wormholes and stuff. You know, back then, it was so theoretical, like, people hadn't really identified real black holes yet. And so, you know, it seemed a little bit too esoteric to me. And then eventually, I got really interested in human diseases and human biology. And when I entered into undergrad at Berkeley, I was originally a pre-med, like, you know, everyone else in my class. But I quickly realized that it's not necessarily medical doctors that are innovating new medicines for curing diseases. It was scientists, biologists, and chemists that were doing this. Very quickly, even in my freshman year, when I started getting involved in in research, I realized that we knew so many different drivers of human disease, yet so many of these seemed to be elusive to kind of drug discovery approaches that were available at the time. 
I was asking myself, why is that? And can we, you know, help to address these uh, problems? And I remember my freshman year in undergrad back in 1999, I remember the courses of doing kind of my own research in John Cassidy's lab as an undergrad. I read this really seminal paper on activity-based protein profiling that came out of Ben Kravat's group. This must have been kind of one of his first papers as a uh, starting assistant professor back in the day that was really, really inspiring to me. He had used these chemical probes to profile the activities of an entire enzyme class, regardless of the functional annotation of these you know, enzymes, and, and subsequently used them to go after inhibitor discovery. And, and I thought that that was just really revolutionary technology. And so eventually, I started collaborating with Ben Kravat through undergrad and graduate school to elucidate off targets of these uh, organophosphorus pesticides at the time, and subsequently then joined his lab as a postdoc. Uh, to really apply these technologies towards drug discovery. So I actually think it would be interesting to take a step back and and define chemical biology more broadly, because I think a lot of listeners are probably well aware and familiar with the fields of chemistry and the fields of biology. But what is chemical biology and how, is it, how does it differ from those two fields? People are trying to de- define that constantly, and that definition keeps changing. But to me, the the simplest uh, definition of that is using chemical approaches to study biology or developing chemical technologies to enable biological investigation. And, and how has the field of chemical biology evolved over time? Chemical biology in its origin was really useful for developing kind of unique chemical tools to be able to, for example, visualize certain biological processes in cells using fluorescent probes or, you know, understanding a mechanism of how biochemical pathways work. But nowadays, chemical biology, the field, has really evolved to now become a true major driver of enabling drug discovery approaches. So the distance between chemical biology to being able to take that chemical biology tool and directly translated to human applications has gotten much, much shorter. That's really exciting. It's become a, a major driving force in drug discovery as opposed to uh, enabling understanding of basic sciences. That's presumably primarily to the end of discovering small molecule drugs, or do you think it expands beyond that? I, I think the definition of chemical biology is constantly evolving and encompassing more and more different fields, whether it's synthetic biology or protein engineering or, or what have you. So all of these approaches are, are kind of rooted in chemical biology. So small molecules and much, much more beyond. So one niche within chemical biology is the field of chemoproteomics, which you are really a, a world-renowned expert in. Could you tell us more about what is chemoproteomics and how is that useful in drug discovery and more broadly? Yeah, so at the core of it, chemoproteomics is a type of science where you can develop chemical probes to enable the target identification of your chemical of interest. So let's say you find a a chemical that has some really interesting biological property. You can convert that chemical into some probe molecule by hooking on bioorthogonal handles or photo affinity tags or what have you to be able to throw that into a living cell and then have it bind to its whatever protein targets it's going to bind to and then subsequently capture those protein targets and then use proteomic approaches to be able to map what protein target your small molecule bound to. So I would say the the core of it is really based on this approach of being able to quickly 
go from a chemical that has biological activity to mechanism of action by identifying its direct protein target. Now, the way that it's been used now for drug discovery applications is uh, using kind of a flavor of chemoproteomics known as activity-based protein profiling that uh, was pioneered by Ben Cravat and Matt Bojo that uses these kind of broad reactivity or activity-based chemical probes that can, in their simplest state, bind across anywhere from hundreds to tens of thousands to really the entirety of the proteome of potential reactive and ligandable sites. Now, one of the challenges, right, in the drug discovery field has been that over 90% of the proteome is still considered undruggable because most proteins don't really have well-defined or well-appreciated binding pockets that you can interrogate with small molecules. And that's a really big problem, right, because there's tons of really cool therapeutic targets in that 90% that we currently can't access. But chemoproteomics, using chemical probes and using proteomics, allows us to identify potential ligandable sites across really now the vast majority of the human proteome. And once you're able to identify those sites, you can uh, then, you know, compete binding of your probe against a library of, for example, covalently acting small molecules to enable more selective and potent ligand discovery against those sites. So what this technology allows you to do is both identify novel binding pockets across proteins that may be undruggable and also find small molecule ligands that bind to those proteins. With those two combinations in hand, that can enable uh, drug discovery. And then where is the field headed, the field of chemoproteomics? And are there certain technology breakthroughs that need to happen in order for kind of your vision of the field of chemoproteomics in 10 years to happen? Certainly there are many uh, advances that could happen in the field of covalent chemoproteomics. Right now, at least within the covalent space, most of our focus has been around cysteines. And that's because there's well-established chemistry and chemical warheads that can bind and irreversibly react with cysteines. And many of those warheads have actually, you know, been turned into, you know, warheads that are attached to orally bioavailable drugs. That's a really, really kind of mature amino acid with a lot of different kind of chemical matter to interrogate it. Outside of that, lysines uh, are showing a lot of promise. There's a lot of different types of reactive probes that can interrogate lysines. Um, And there are companies that have come out in that space. Outside of that, it gets, you know, murkier. So um, there are plenty of other you know, amino acids that can be interrogated. And there are chemical probes uh, that can react with many of these other amino acids outside of cysteines and lysines. But when it comes down to trying to actually turn that into a drug, many of these warheads that interrogate these kinds of amino acids outside of cysteines and lysines tend to be metabolically less stable and maybe not compatible for oral bioavailability. And so a lot of both pioneering and, and chemistry needs to happen there, coupled with chemoproteomics, ligand discovery, you know, and chemoproteomics to catch up with with cysteines. And so that's kind of one area that definitely, I think, needs advancement, and it's an area of focus across many chemical biologists in the field. Outside of covalent chemoproteomics, there's the whole area of kind of uh, reversible small molecule ligand protein interactions that you can potentially capture with photo affinity uh, labeling approaches uh, that Again, Ben Cravat and Chris Parker uh, have been pioneering and have led the companies like Belhara that are really, you know, leading the uh, charge in this area that now take out the restriction of covalency and interrogating nucleophilic amino acids like cysteines and serines and tyrosines, and now can potentially encompass any right binding pocket. And that has uh, tremendous uh, promise as well into the future of chemoproteomics. But I think, you know, coupled with 
all these cool technologies in chemical biology that have come about, whether it's chemoproteomics or DNA encoded libraries or fragment-based drug discovery approaches or all these kind of AI machine learning approaches for, for ligand discovery, I think one of the things that at least I've started to realize and I think the field is realizing is that oftentimes for a lot of these undruggable targets, you might find a small molecule that binds to your target, but in itself may be a silent binder, may not actually functionally manipulate the target in a way that would give you therapeutic benefit. So that requires you to then subsequently link that to some kind of other therapeutic modality that allows you to functionally then interrogate that target for therapeutic applications. And so, you know, one of the areas that, that my lab is now really focusing on moving into the future is how do we more rationally design and develop the arsenal of new therapeutic modalities that allow us to take these binders and, and convert them into functional molecules. And so you've had, I'm sure, lots of discoveries and innovations in your lab over the years. And what was it that in this case made you convinced that, aha, right now is the right moment to take this science and move it outside of my lab and start a company around that discovery? For us, we're still kind of an academic uh, lab that is run mostly by graduate students and, and postdocs. And to go from a proof of concept to an actual developmental candidate or a drug that you can deploy in, in a clinical setting, there's a lot of medicinal chemistry efforts, really you know, professional drug discovery efforts that have to happen to get there. And, and that's not something that academics are traditionally great at. Uh, that's something where biotech and you know, professional drug hunters are, are really, really good at. And so for me, you know, the decision to uh, spin things out of my lab and into kind of a startup company setting really happens when we are able to establish proof of concept in our case of a kind of a fully small molecule based approach, not like a genetically engineered approach or something that is not going to be directly kind of uh, translatable as a drug, but like a fully synthetic small molecule based approach that shows you proof of concept that this approach is working. I would say that developing a new therapeutic modality into a drug is always, always very challenging. There's always obstacles that, that one encounters that you didn't expect. And I think it requires that really a ruthless focus, right, to, to try to overcome those obstacles and make your kind of full-time focus to, to really get over these hurdles and, and to, to really develop it as a drug. How many companies have you started? So far, two. So far. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Frontier Medicines and Vicinitas Therapeutics. But any differences you would, you would point out in sort of the journey that was starting the first one versus the second one, learnings that translated from one to the other, things that didn't? Yeah, I would say with uh, Frontier Medicines, you know, that was the first company that I had kind of independently started by myself uh, alongside uh, a really kind of thankfully veteran CEO, Chris Barma. I got to learn how to put together pitch decks and how to pitch to a lot of VCs. And I feel like within a six-month span, we must have pitched to I don't know, 60 or 70 different VCs. <laughs> and But through that process, I got to know a lot of people in venture capital and then realized that raising the Series A round was just the the, the first step and, and actually not even the first step, it's step zero before <laughs> you actually get into it. And then building the team and the company and the pipeline and platform technologies, that whole experience was, was just an incredible exper learning experience. Having had that under my belt, you know, the raising money part was uh, 
a little bit easier for for the second company. But I would say the the major difference has been in just the the times that we're living in. Uh, so mm-hmm. back when we started Frontier Medicines, it was a very different time from uh, the biotech climate that we're living in now. <laughs> back then, I felt like we we uh, didn't have to be so kind of uh, lean and and mean we could we could kind of explore things and and now we really have to be diligent about uh, driving pipeline programs and and stretching out our runway and and really being fiscally diligent right to you know meet the challenges and meet the inflection points that we need to by the end of the day it's just a very difficult time right now so it's also a really good learning experience to to maneuver through this kind of time is there anything you would um you know, given the current environment, given your experience now as a, you know, two-time veteran founder, you would give to a scientist today thinking about potentially starting a company? I would say right now, if you want to start a company, I think having a, a really cool platform is is really useful, but you also need to really understand what targets it's going to be useful for and also have a relatively mature chemical matter or biological matter or what have you before you kind of go after raising that series A round. Otherwise, I would say seed funding is actually quite helpful right now to give yourself that breathing room to to explore new uh, innovative platform technologies and such. So Dan, we mentioned before, and, and one of the things that I, I really admire about you is that you've been a very clear leader in pharma collaborations with your your lab's long-lasting partnership with Novartis, as well as I know um, several other leading biopharmas. What motivated you to do that in the first place? And what advice would you give to other academic scientists who are eager and curious to initiate partnerships with biopharma as well? Yeah, so I remember um, this was now, I guess, six or seven years ago when we were starting to really get into this covalent chemoproteomic space and, and using it for, for a variety of drug discovery applications. And around that time, scientists that I'd known within Novartis, we started talking about putting together um, a collaborative kind of agreement between our lab and, and Novartis to, to go after using chemoproteomic approaches to enable, you know, drugging undruggable targets, enabling targeted protein degradation strategies. And when we started talking about this, we wanted to take a, a little bit of a different approach. So, so first of all, we started talking with Novartis, but also uh, a good friend and colleague of mine uh, at UC Berkeley, Dean Tost, who's a, a synthetic chemist, was also talking with Novartis. And, and uh, we thought maybe we can actually all come together in a team to, to really synergize our efforts between you know really hardcore uh, synthetic organic chemistry with chemical biology approaches to to really, really tackle some of these big questions in, in drug discovery. And the format of that collaboration was very different. You know, usually these sponsored research agreements are focused around a very, very narrow window of projects where, you know, you have milestones and deliverables and and you can't really veer away from what was initially planned. The Novartis collaboration was purposefully designed so that we'd have maximum flexibility to pivot as needed to follow the scientific directions. And also, as the field changed, which it certainly did during the time that from when we first signed to to the end of the first five years of the collaboration, that we could pivot with the times, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, dub tax were not uh, part of our initial 
game plan. I mean, we hadn't even thought about that concept at that time. We, we were really, you know, trying to investigate targeted protein degradation. And discovering, for example, new E3 ligase recruiters, I don't think was even a aim of the original collaborative project. But it's something that we stumbled upon fortuitously uh, when investigating the mode of action of an anti-cancer natural product. And then from that learning, we then were able to take that learning and then apply it towards many different E3 ligases to, to expand the scope of E3 ligase recruiters for, for targeted protein degradation applications. And so that's been an incredibly fruitful endeavor to be able to have that maximum flexibility, go after really blue sky ideas with pharma partners. And it's been also an incredible training experience for the graduate students and postdocs to be able to work directly with industry scientists and uh, leverage our collective brain power, the, the capabilities that pharma has that academics don't, plus our academic capabilities to just be you know, really creative and, and innovative, and combining all of that together to, to really have this fruitful collaboration. And so we've now uh, subsequently renewed that uh, collaboration in this Novartis Berkeley Translational Chemical Biology Institute. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today on BioE's World, and welcome to the A16Z family. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be part of this great family at A16Z. Thank you for being here, Dan. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. Disclosures.